Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology. My name is Richard Osijo of the uh, City University of New York, and I'm the host of this channel. And today we're going to be talking to Michaela DeSusi, Assistant Professor of Sociology at North Carolina State University. And we're going to talk to her today about her book, Contested Tastes, Foie Gras, and the Politics of Food. Welcome to the show, Michaela. Thank you. Happy to be here. Okay, so I was wondering if you could just start by telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to write this book. I am a sociologist. Um, I did my dissertation at Northwestern University, where this project got started. I was interested in food politics, particularly around Chicago food politics, um, in terms of thinking about the local food movements, restaurants, and city politics. and While I was in graduate school, foie gras became an issue in the city of Chicago. I was working at a farmer's market at the time on Saturday mornings, and a number of chefs came to that farmer's market to shop and to chat and were talking about this article that had just been published in the Chicago Tribune about two chefs calling each other names over one's decision to stop serving foie gras at his restaurant. I immediately thought, what is this thing? I've never really heard of it before. Um, and why are chefs talking about it or fighting about it? Um, the next week, completely by chance, I went to France to visit my younger sister who was studying abroad there and um, noted that foie gras was everywhere, ubiquitous in the, in the city centers, in the shops, in restaurants. Um, and so I started asking people what, what it was, what it was about. Um, once I got back, I, um, was looking for a dissertation topic and mentioned foie gras to my then advisor who said, you know, this would be a fabulous dissertation topic. And I thought, yes, yes, it would. Um, because I really think, I thought then, and I still think that foie gras is this object that lets us ask so many different questions about the role of food, the role of politics, the role of culture, the role of emotions and the role of social movements and the animal rights movement in particular, what was happening with people starting to care about food and where their food was coming from at this time. Um, And so from that, it, it just sort of worked and became bigger and bigger and bigger and eventually became this this book. Oh, that's a great uh, origin story. It's uh, got a lot of serendipity to it, but also seemed to be you know, guided a little bit by your interest in, in food politics. And and mm-hmm. you're related from, to what you just said is that you you entitled the first chapter, uh, What Can We Learn From Liver? And you mm-hmm. state that all the the questions surrounding the uh, the debates about the, the morality of foie gras can be, they could be, Termed by by looking into its gastropolitics, and this is a real central mm-hmm. concept within the book. I was wondering if you could just explain to us a little bit about what that term means. Sure. Well, first, I feel like I should elaborate what foie gras is, if that's all right. Yes, that's a great idea. Probably some okay. folks may not know what it is. Yes. Okay. So, I mean, it is, and this is one of the interesting questions. This actually, this kind of what foie gras is, is something that is... Um, part of the book. Um, so foie gras is the liver of a duck or a goose that has been force fed in the last few weeks of its life. 
um, with a measured amount of feed in a specific kind of process that's called gavage in French. Um, after those few weeks, the bird is slaughtered and removed and becomes this dish that is considered um, a gastronomic dish uh, of authenticity and heritage and tradition in French cuisine. Um, but it's also in the U.S., not just part of French cuisine, has really worked its way into sort of new American cuisine that you'll find foie gras on many menus at different types of restaurants, but all of which are kind of high price point restaurants. You won't find foie gras at the diner down the street, but you will find it um, at kind of date night restaurants. Um, and the issue about foie gras, why it's a contested, a contested food is this process of force feeding that the duck or the goose is um, fed, force fed with a metal, often metal tube in the last couple of weeks of its life. And um, animal rights activists and their supporters consider this to be a cruel and torturous process. Um, producers and their supporters, on the other hand, push back and say that this process simply mimics a natural process that ducks and geese in the wild will overeat right before migration or water birds overeat before migration and fatten their livers to store food for the journey. And so this simply um, pushes nature the way that we get eggs from chickens or milk from cows, that we have accentuated nature in a particular way. Um, and they also argue that the process of force feeding is not cruel the way that it would be cruel if you put a metal tube down a human's throat. Um, they are, they say that we are anthropomorphizing, that we don't, we cannot experience what it is to be a duck or a goose um, who do not have nerve endings in their throats and whose throats are keratinous, meaning that they um, are firm, not fleshy like ours. Um, I have felt numerous duck and goose esophagi um, after slaughter. And it kind of feels like your fingernails do when you get out of a hot shower, that they are flexible and bendy, but not painful if you press on them hard, if that makes sense. Um, so that's what foie gras is. Um, what was the original question? Uh, just this concept then of uh, gastropolitics. And, gastropolitics. Right, yes. right. And, and, and what it means as a, as a way of framing these discussions and questions and debates surrounding yeah. this controversial product. Great. Okay. So, I mean, I think there are a number of foods that do this, but foie gras is exemplar, exemplary in some ways that it lets us, it lets us broadly see, I think how all of these ideas about food cultures and taste cultures can become used toward political ends. Um, and my book is about how this becomes, how this food becomes used for political ends in two different national contexts and comparing how that pro those processes work. Um, regardless of the national context, foie gras has really, it's pushed people's emotional buttons, um, in a way that illuminates, I think, the moral, political, cultural controversies that we are having with our food system more broadly. Um, 
And in terms of thinking about shifting norms, shifting values of our communities, how we how we use food as a way of telling the world who we are. Um, foie gras seems to be to me to be exemplary in that in that way um, because of the ways that it has rallied people to its cause, whether that is for or against, um, but also in terms of what their cause is, whether it's nationalist pride or wanting to hew to tradition um, or whether it is trying to remove animal cruelty from the food system. Um, some people find it delicious and historically and culturally irreplaceable, and others find its very existence upsetting and offensive and a reason to protest. Um, and so for me, trying to parse all of that in writing this book, um, I came up with this term gastropolitics to sort of help me and help the reader think through what it means for not just not just one particular food item, but food culture and gastronomy or culinary cultures more broadly to help use those um, those things as ways to think through the ways that people draw boundaries around who they are and who they are not and to fight for what they believe in. Great. No, really cool. So you then lay this out, like you said, this is a comparative study uh, between France and the U.S., and you start with the French case and the origins, really, of, of foie gras as this cultural product. And while while foie gras in France is really hailed as this, uh, this essential part of French heritage, this symbol of Frenchness, and this, this very special product, you found that, that it only really gained this status fairly recently, and rather than being some kind of special or exceptional product or part of some kind of holiday ritual or something like that, it's actually, as you said, very ubiquitous. It's, it's everywhere in France and it's kind of consumed for, uh, really any old occasion. Um, tell us a little bit about how, how this came to be that it became so associated with, uh, symbol, symbolic of Frenchness and of French heritage. Yeah. Well, I mean, it still is a special object of French heritage, and it is also ubiquitous. Um, and that, to me, was really the paradox that I found when I was there doing my research and work to explain um, in the book. So foie gras does have a long history, um, and this history showed up everywhere that I went in France. Um, in my field notes, I started jotting foie gras fairy tale for when when this appeared, which was very frequent, where people, I would ask, well, what is foie gras? What does it mean to you? What Tell me about what you're doing to people who are producers or work in museums or industry or tourism. And everyone pretty much told me the same story, how um, this is a product that has thousands of years of history. It dates back to the ancient Egyptians and the beginning of France as a country. It relates to... Um, stories about French royalty and the origins of modern France, um, that this, it had, does have a long history within France and is still her heralded as a special object of patrimony and cultural heritage and gastronomy. Um, it's, it's an important part of France's popular national self-imagining. What does it mean to be French today? 
Um, and that's where this paradox that I just mentioned comes in. Um, as I found in my research, the foie gras is also ubiquitous. Um, it's sold at every single grocery store or chain store or supermarket you can walk into around the country. There are, and not just in one little bit of one little shelf. I mean, there are entire shelves and entire sections of grocery stores dedicated to products made from fat ducks. Um, and so what I found in my historical research and in talking to people in the industry is that the ubiquity of foie gras and its place in French culinary culture, it really has been carefully nurtured since World War II um, by the French state and by businesses who are keen to grow the market over the years. Um, they, like other parts of agriculture in France and elsewhere, it was part of the story of the modernization of rural peasant agriculture and um, part of the story of in the industrialization of food. Um, today in France, foie gras is a multi-billion euro industry. 90% of it is produced on in, by industrial producers, meaning that it is a vertically integrated product where you have different people around the country um, breeding the birds, raising the birds, gavaging the birds, processing the birds, and all the livers and, and parts of the bird end up going to different factories around the country to get processed into um, the cans or jars or vacuum-sealed freezer packages that people buy at the store. Um, only about, what I found is only about 10% of foie gras produced in France is from quote unquote, traditional artisanal farms, um, the ones that get heralded in marketing materials and tourism offices um, and storybooks as this kind of magical, mythical French thing. Um, the majority is really produced in an industrial supply chain and by companies that have multinational reach. A lot of these companies are at this point are European companies or even extend past the national borders of Europe. Then foie gras becomes sort of one line, one product line of many in these national, in these um, multinational portfolios. Hmm. Yes. Yeah, so we have this, the gastropolitics that plays out at this level, then at the, the level of large scale uh, business, global multinational corporations, as well as public policy, national policy. But right. you also show how gastropolitics really plays out also on the ground and how foie gras production and consumption at mm -hmm. this small scale level have become ways that French people do Frenchness, so to say. And you, yeah. you encounter people in France who you show how they would only really speak to you if you said you liked foie gras or if you showed that you could eat foie gras in front mm -hmm. of them and other traditional foods, which is kind of how you, you begin this argument. Tell us a little bit about, yeah. about that so, experience. So this, this chapter that you're referring to in my book, this was one of my, I mean, this was, to me, this was really like the research process, right? This was, I mean, some of the most fun research to do. And this was also, um, I mean, one of the one of the chapters that I enjoyed writing the most, um, both in the dissertation and then the book. Then the, in the dissertation, it was it was much shorter and more condensed. And I really got to elaborate in the book, which was which was just super fun. Um, so 
my argument about France, it's this gastropolitics argument, how it takes form as a nationalist project in France. So what I call gastro-nationalism, which is one variant of gastropolitics. And on so on the ground in mostly southwest France, where most of these farms are, um, I spent a certain amount of time traveling around, visiting, spending time at different farms. And how does this artisanal product work? How does this work for people's lives? How does this work for tourism? How does this work in terms of the rural countryside? How is this product really, how is this product celebrated and heralded as cultural patrimony and heritage when it is in some ways a dissonant heritage, when it's a heritage that makes other people cringe with um, like morally cringe thinking this, this is not a good thing. Why are you celebrating this? This is not a good thing. Um, so questions really came about what does this mean to people to be doing this thing that others think is not great? Um, and I recognized for myself doing this work was that my own person being there really, really mattered a lot um, for who I was as an American, as a woman at that point in my late 20s. Um, you know, who was this strange American woman? Was she some undercover animal rights activist? Was she someone who could be trusted? You know, who who was who was this? And so an outsider coming into these places that are very much insider places. And like you mentioned, and I write about in the in the book that um, one of the ways that I got her got through through um, trust was to have to participate, have to eat in front of people, that there were a number of um, people I wanted to talk to or wanted to spend some time with or wanted just, I just wanted them to show up around their farm, um, would not, maybe permitted me there physically, but would not permit me there in their minds until I ate something in front of them to show my not allegiance, but to show my insiderness. Um, and usually that was foie gras or something, something similar on two different occasions. Um, I had to eat raw foie gras that was nicked with a little knife, just from a just butchered duck um, in front of me in a slaughterhouse where on one occasion um, one of the one of the people nicked a little bit off and held it out to me on the knife and said, here, eat it. It's delicious. You Americans, you love to eat raw cookie dough. This this is just like that. Eat this. And once I did, um, it was night and day that I went from um, who is this person? Can I trust her? Is she does she really belong here? What can I tell her? What shouldn't I tell her to? almost really almost being a member of the family in that, in that little five second snip of time, simply by um, ingesting this thing that was known to be controversial to people outside of that area. Um, and so my identity, my presence mattered in that way um, in terms of, What's going on on the ground there? 
um, this issue of artisanal foie gras versus industrial foie gras. This was also something that um, I went to France to do this research thinking that all or most foie gras was these stories, was were these farms, were um, small farms produced specialty, authentic, traditional product um, for Christmas holidays, New Year's holidays, because the, the few books that I could find in the U.S., um, the few things I could read on the web at this time about foie gras were simply this. And I was I was surprised to find a multi-billion-dollar industry with multinational ties, um, and in some ways that is intentional, that is purposeful, and that's what I write about when I write about where this industry is today. Um, if you rented a car right now and went and drove around Southwest France, um, you will see signs, billboards all over the place. Um, some of the billboards advertise large foie gras companies, but if you drive around country roads off the auto route, you'll see signs for stop off to my, to Rich's foie gras farm and have a tasting and buy some products. Um, some of these signs are hand drawn to evoke this rustic charm um, or because someone simply didn't want to pay the money for a professional sign. Um, some of them have smiling ducks and geese playing musical instruments or wearing bow ties on them. But these signs are everywhere saying, stop off, show like we're showing off what we have. And you can stop off at these bucolic, beautiful pastoral farms. Look at the geese, have a viewing of Gavage if they're if it's the right, if you stop off at the right time, um, shop in their little shop, eat at a restaurant. Some of these um, farms have overnight rooms, overnight guest rooms, guest houses where you can stay, um, that it's part of an agritourism movement, um, which didn't really have the name agritourism when I was there, but has now developed into agritourism. Um, this, I mean, this project, this product is celebrated. Um, and the easiest thing that some of these artisanal farmers can do to counter the attacks coming at them from the international animal rights movement is to say, come, come, take a look, see what I'm doing, stay at my farm, like enjoy the serenity. Um, it will be a wonderful experience. Um, and buy a few products while you're there. And it's really, it's part of the landscape. It's part of the landscape in a way that it's part, well, it's part of the visible landscape. Um, what it hides is the fact that there are any number of industrial producers um, literally around the corner in some cases. And not huge CAFO-type farms like we think about in the U.S., um, not at all, actually. Um, because the industry there is vertically integrated and you have different people doing the raising of the ducks and the feeding of the ducks, that even in for the largest producers, um, a lot, most of the ducks are sort of parsed out to a larger number of people. And so the industrial gavage operations that I visited, um, which I had to have insider info and insider connections to be able to go onto the property and to talk with the people and see the operations, um, were still only feeding 
1,000 to 1,500 ducks at a time, which in some cases, and when we can think, when we think about what a, an industrial chicken or pork or beef operation looks like in the U.S., 1,500 animals is nothing. It's tiny in comparison. Um, it's simply that for these industrial, industrial quote unquote producers, they are, it's where they are selling their ducks, who they are selling their ducks to, and the process, and the process of gavage and how that's different. But these people are not visible. So you could stop off at a artisanal foie gras farm and look around and have a tasting and have dinner there, perhaps, um, and leave and go home to your house or your apartment and think that this is what foie gras looks like when almost literally across the road will be someone who participates in the industrial chain who does not have a sign, who does not have a welcome mat laid out. Um, and so they're almost side by side, but you are only really only aware one and not the other, which to me was really the, hmm, how do you say it? Um, I was curious what was hit, what was in, what was hidden in plain sight, um, while I was there. And this is really, in many ways, the story of industrial versus artisanal foie gras production in France. Many French consumers are looking for artisanal foie gras production today. They want to have that connection to the farmer. They want to know that the process of production is um, more sort of in-house or quote unquote better, but just similar to the ways that more consumers in the U.S. are looking for um, meat products that are ethically raised or um, shopping at farmer's markets for those types of connections. It's very, it's, it's a very, very, very similar process um, in that way, in terms of how food for sort of the middle and upper middle classes is evolving. Yeah, it's a, it's a great finding. And I think readers can really tell that it was uh, one of your favorite chapter to write. It, it, it really comes off that way, but you bring up it the U S what's that? A blast. Yeah, it was a blast. Yeah. It sounds like it. <laughs> So you, you, you bring up the U.S. and let's switch over to that a bit. So as you mentioned before, foie gras, you know, it's, it's in the U.S. That's part of the foodie scene and, and food culture, but it's a, it's a high end food. It's a relatively unknown food in the U.S., but for a short time, and this is how you said you first got interested in this topic in the first place, it was banned in Chicago and really led to a lot of conflict between many groups in that city. So what really explains here how such an obscure food can become such a lightning rod and, and the target of a prohibitory law? It's a, a great question and something I spent many years trying to figure out the answer to. Um, well, first, in the U.S., it is a mostly an unknown product, um, in part because the supply of it is so small that there are now only really two farms in the U.S. There were three um, when I was doing my research. There was one farm in California and two in upstate New York. Um, California passed a ban on foie gras production and consumption in 2004 to go into effect in 2012. And that did go into effect, putting the only farm there out of business. 
Um, and that ban was reversed in 2014, but the damage was really already done. Um, so there really now are only two farms, both in upstate New York. And so it's really, it's incredibly small to call it, to call these places even like, to call it an industry is almost laughable in some ways that, um, these farms, while somewhat sizable, are maybe a $25 million a year industry, at least when I was doing my research. And $25 million a year sounds like a lot when you just say it, but in some ways that's, that's a couple of hedge fund managers Christmas bonuses. Like that's, it's really, when you think that it's industry, that is not very much at all. And so it's an expensive product. It's an elite product. It's, um, hard to access or get products in part because there just isn't that much of it. Um, a number of restaurants in the U S who want to serve foie gras are getting it from one, mainly one farm in upstate New York at this point, but some are importing it from Canadian farms as well. Um, who are in Quebec, um, which, and it's interesting, those farms are actually, many of them are owned by French companies. Um, that's, that goes beyond what you asked me. So I'll focus on the question, which is what is happening in terms of why, why this object that, or this food that most people don't know about, don't eat, became such a polarizing hot topic. Um, and I think, so I think there's two stories going on here that are sort of intertwined with each other. Um, first, I think it became a hot topic because for animal rights activists interested in making a dent in the food system, um, it's an easy target that to create campaigns to appeal to consumers not to eat it or chefs not to serve it to lawmakers to ban it. Um, that this is it's something easy to do when you look at the pictures and you look at the videos of Gavage, it it looks awful, especially if you have never seen something like that before in your life, that um, it looks it looks terrible. Um, in many ways, when I started the work, I thought I was going to fall on the side of the animal rights activists, that who are these people? How could anyone think that this is a good thing or this is something worth doing, um, in part because of the, the power of these images? Um, and so thinking about how to get people to really accept an issue, not just glom onto an issue, but accept an issue as something that is an issue that deserves resources, that deserves attention. Um, foie gras seemed like this kind of amazing topic for or amazing subject for animal rights activists to create a campaign around. It looks terrible. It's a food that only rich people eat. Um, and the, sh the restaurants that serve it are kind of fancy restaurants. And in some ways, it was a really great target in that those ways. And in other ways, it wasn't right. Just because something is a low fruit doesn't doesn't always mean that it's delicious. Um, in many ways, what I found was the animal rights activists trying to get are competing with 
what was really like foodie culture, new foodie culture. That they were competing for the same segment of the population, people who were now shopping at farmers markets, interested in local food movements, reading Michael Pollan, going to these restaurants that were heralding this sort of sustainable agricultural change and listening to those chefs as opinion leaders. Um, and so really the, I, what I found was the animal rights activists and pro foie gras forces were really competing for this very same small demographic. Um, and chefs and restaurants really became a pivot point here. I mean, the reason to target chefs is that these restaurants are where most foie gras is consumed in the U.S., that it's a restaurant food in many cases. Um, but many of these chefs were the same ones, are the same ones who support the good food movement and better animal welfare. And what's fascinating, what was fascinating to me is that many of these chefs really pushed back, saying, why are you attacking me? I'm the same one who supports, you know, local beef and local pork, and I don't buy industrial food. Foie gras to me fits in this category. It fits in the sort of artisanal small producer category, um, small scale artisanal farm and progressive, progressive category. It's has nothing to do with industrial food production. The ways that animal rights activists and their supporters would make out to, would make it out to be. And for those consumers, when animal rights activists called foie gras a product of factory farms, the accusation just fell flat because it's just not that these farm, these two slash three farms are really just these t relatively tiny things. Um, they have very little relationship to large meat producers in the U.S. And in many ways, when I talked with people in the foie gras production industry in the U.S., they wanted no part of this large animal, right? This, sorry, they wanted absolutely no part of the meat, the meat industry. Um, they could have reached out to lobbyists and industrial supporters when they got challenged by legal bans, but they chose not to. They, they really did not want to be associated with the poultry industry or the beef industry really in any way. Um, so that's one of the stories that I kind of uncovered in my research. And the second, in terms of how and why foie gras became, became this thing that became a story that took on a life of its own, is I think really a story about American consumer culture in the 21st century, where Americans hate being told that they can't have something. Um, and so when foie gras was debated in Chicago, and then eventually this, this is, I mean, there's a lot of insider that baseball with how it got banned through the, through the city council, but it did. And then the ban got reversed two years later. People, I mean, Chicago sort of erupted into foie gras central because people don't like being told no. Um, there was a rebelliousness that was really, it was cheeky. It was sarcastic. It brought out the ironies of people's interests. Um, so restaurants in Chicago started hosting underground foie gras dinners. Some of the restaurants started giving, giving foie gras away for free. 
Um, the language of ban in Chicago was about selling flora at restaurants. And so a few restaurants started giving it away for free as an appetizer or a little amuse-bouche at the beginning of the meal. And so they weren't selling it as the language of the law um, sort of uh, prescribed. And that got challenged in a city court and the judgment came down in favor of the restaurant saying you are not selling it. And that then it became open season to sort of flaunt, make fun of the law through food. Um, and a lot of these chefs used a very language of choice in terms of letting people eat what they wanted. Um, and also because foie gras was not something that many people knew about or really ate very often, all of a sudden it started hitting the headlines as being this sort of devious but delicious delicacy. And uh, many people said, I, I want to try this. I especially want to try it before the city bans it. And restaurants started selling out. And the same thing happened in California when the ban went into effect there in 2012. Um, one chef in California who I spoke with told me that after the ban officially went into effect there, um, the first time they had it at the restaurant and sold it at the restaurant after that ban, they sold out in about 10 minutes. Um, people knew he was going to have it ahead of time through word of mouth and through social media. And after that, they asked for it all the time um, that it became a, you know, uh, blah, 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 blah. Uh, you don't, you don't, don't tell, no, I don't even know what I'm saying at this moment. Um, it became a hear no evil, see no, see no evil um, moment where some restaurants started using code words or using um, what a few restaurants in Chicago tried using trading cards. That idea did not work at all, where little cards were given out to people to go to a restaurant and pass the card over to the waiter. And they were supposed to bring you the surreptitious foie gras. Um, that did not work at all. Um, but some other restaurants did start using code words where you would order the special lobster dish or um, other types of funny things like that to know that then, then the, the chef was supposed to send out a little plate of foie gras for you. Um, People liked taking this risk that wasn't really a risk because it made them feel like they were having fun with it. Um, and I, I do think in many ways that's what sort of took down the bans in Chicago and California that people weren't taking it seriously. The right people weren't taking it seriously, um, to make it stick. And in many cases, especially in Chicago, it became sort of a laughing stock of the city, that it, it started damaging the city's reputation on a national scale. And the city council members really, I think, got embarrassed, got embarrassed that they were being identified as this um, quote unquote nanny city was a term that often came up, um, that they were prescribing what people could and could not eat in a way that it was taking attention away from other types of things that they were trying to work on. Oh, wow. That's yeah, a really cool example and uh, really fascinating how it, how it came about. Uh, probably my, probably my favorite part 
of the book is a point when you talk about how both supporters and opponents of foie gras, they, they all told you that you should just go and see it with your own eyes at the farms, whether cruelty yeah. was occurring to the ducks or not. And they all, they all cited science to, to support their side. And we could see a lot of parallels with this actually, uh, today in today's political environment, you call this the, the paradox of perception, mm-hmm. which relates to how really kind of how different groups see evidence, see empirical evidence with their own yeah. eyes, or if they see it presented to them in a scientific format. Tell us a little bit about how this works. Yeah. Well, first to your point about how it applies today, I, I mean, like you and probably many of listeners of this program, I'm a news junkie right now. And I, I mean, I'm seeing this everywhere and to the, to the point where I wish I had some of the language when I was writing about quote unquote alternative facts and the post truth era. Um, that this is, there's so many parallels. It's so, it's so fascinating to me and so interesting to see how many people across academic disciplines, but also in the regular light, in regular life are recognizing that Facts are not what they might think they are in many ways. It's fascinating. I am overwhelmed by how fascinating it is, and sometimes um, that's putting it nicely on things. Um, but so this this chapter is called the paradox of perception for the reason that you stated that. Um, and this was one of my favorite chapters to write. It was one of the hardest chapters to write too. Um, and it was based on this, like you said, this idea that both sides, I mean, I, don't, I hate to say that the foie gras issue is a he said, she said issue, or that there's two sides that have equal weight in the matter, that there's really, there's multiple perspectives. It's much more of a, um, multi-variable prism or multi-side prism than just a flip of a coin. Um, but that said, the most strident of defenders and the most strident of opponents all told me, well, just go see it. Just go to the farm and see Gavage, see the force feeding, and you will see what I see. You will know immediately what I know. You will see that it is cruel or you will see that it that's fascinating to me that you could be so adamant, so vehement and have it tied to your sort of story of who you are so tightly to, to have such different responses and such different reactions to the same image or the same um, moment in time or the same being physically present in a situation. Um, and so what's, I mean, I think this is, I think, really think this is one of the enduring takeaways or enduring themes of the book, that whether or not people care about foie gras, I think this is one of the contributions that it can make to our current sort of discussion, current discourse about what is what, is that we really don't know that even trying to put yourself in another person's shoes or an animal's shoes at this point, that we really, we really don't know the context. We really don't know 
who or what they are and who or what they feel or how, what and how they feel. Um, that I went to the farms. I went to 15 different foie gras farms, ranging from uh, small family farms that had a husband and wife team to some of the largest farms in France to the largest foie gras farm in the U.S. And I don't know. I still don't know. Is this cruel? Is this process of gavage, of force feeding with a metal tube, cruel? Should it be banned? I still don't know. I've been working on the topic of foie gras for, at this point, more than 10 years, and I still don't have an answer. Um, It is very easy to listen to the person narrating next to you to hear what they're seeing and to buy into what they're saying. And that could be just about anyone. Um, And so there were some farms that I had kind of a cringe reaction to like, Oh, I can't believe this is happening. This is not something I feel comfortable with. And there were some farms where I looked around and said, this, this is what people are objecting to. This is what people want to have banned. This is one of the sort of cleanest, well, most well-run farm operations I, I might have ever seen. And it had nothing to do with the size of the operation. This wasn't about small versus large. This was about care taken with the animals, with the equipment, with the facilities, with the workers. Um it really didn't have to do with the size of the operation. Um, some of the smaller farms that I went to were were dirty, to put it bluntly. Um, and the large operations were some of the cleanest, most well-run um, farm facilities I've really ever seen. Um, and so it has nothing to do with size. Um which I think people might assume, oh, small, small producers must be better, big producers bad. But that's not the case. At least that wasn't the case for me. In terms of the perception of whether this act is cruel, this act of force feeding with a metal tube is cruel, this is where it comes down to almost motivated reasoning that tr- almost what some, some um, political scientists today are talking about politics are talking about almost tribal identities um, in terms of only really to the people who are on your side already um, or who you see yourself as emulating already. That person X says this thing, and so therefore that must be true. Um, versus person Y says this thing, and that must be false. Um, that must be fake. And it's really, it's fascinating that people are trying to think for themselves, but are also so heavily attuned to and guided by um, the opinion leaders that they want to believe in the first place. And this goes from everything to national, international politics, to what you think of duck liver. Um, to me, that's fascinating. It's fascinating to think about how how our culture works in that way, how our minds work in that way, and 
really how that then has material effects, ramifications for our mar- for markets, ramifications for consumption habits, ramifications for politics, um, ramifications for who we who we see as our compatriots and who we see as our enemies. Um, and this idea that perception matters, especially when it comes to something like food production, um, is something that I think is really becoming more and more prevalent as well. There's so much rhetoric out there about know where your food comes from, go see how it's produced, um, meet the farmer. And I did do that. Right. But I did it for a product that people also think is a cruel and horrible product, um, not just for, you know, lettuce or apples. And so there is where I see the interesting, the interesting dissonance. Um, and I think the producers recognize this, too, at least the ones in the U.S. recognize this idea about um, transparency and visibility. Um, I think it's somewhat telling that I contacted, you know, the foie gras farms here in the U.S. And one of them didn't get back to me or trying to put me off for a while. But the other two said, you want to come see what we're doing? Great. Come visit. Open door. When do you want to come? Set up a tour. Set up meetings. Stay for as long as you want. I'll show you everything. And so they really see transparency and visibility as the way that they think they are going to succeed with the public, um, whether it's academics like me or journalists or, or chefs, um, they're opening their doors or they, at least they, I don't know about recently, but in, you know, when I was doing the research for this book, they were opening their doors. They were saying, you want to see what we're doing? Great. Come see what we're doing. Transparency and visibility is our thing. As opposed to me trying to get in to see, you know, Purdue, chicken producers or butterball turkey producers. I tried that too, and it did not work. Those doors were closed. And so um, producers of this product that is this, you know, quote, quote, unquote, cruel product saying, come see, come see everything you want to see. To me, that's telling. It's telling in a good way that they wanted to be transparent, wanted to permit people to come and visually and physically experience the process of production in a way that we are so distant from food production in general in this country. Yeah. Well, like you, I've certainly uh, had these ideas from your book in my mind as I've just thought about uh, either other cases of, of food issues and food politics, as well as just mainstream political governmental politics. Uh, And uh, yeah, I'm sure you would want to, uh, you know, rewrite some of this to to uh, ref- more more directly reflect some of the uh, current issues going on. Uh, so, I wanted to ask a question that you've you've touched on a little bit here and there during this uh, interview. Uh, considering how polarizing foie gras is methodologically, how were you able to to really navigate this polarized environment with your participants how did you really is it, i could imagine it being almost like walking across the landmine when speaking to uh, some of these people who have very very strong opinions for and against and 
these opinions yeah. will vary. Some will be for it yeah. for some reasons and not others, and others will be against it for some reasons but not others. So, um, as a researcher, how did you how did you deal with this? Man, that is a great question. Um, in some ways, I went into it. Well, first, I went into it blindly, thinking that I was going to be able to get in with everybody. Um, that was so case. Um, I got told no a lot, a lot, a lot. Um, I, I a number of activists and council, city council people in Chicago, um, people in kind of in the industry. I, I got told no a lot. Um, which is fine. Like not everybody says yes. Um, in terms of navigating the landlines, that's such a great, that's such a great analogy for what this is. It really is. Um, some of it was effort and time and being willing to take a hit and getting pushed down and trying to get back up again. But some of it was using connections, um, that I had, in Chicago to the food scene through the farmer's market that I mentioned earlier that I worked at. Um, I knew a number of chefs and used what's called snowball sampling where I asked people to recommend me to their friends and um, showed up at places and got into places that way. Um, What was fascinating, I mean, not fascinating, what was hard, what was hardest, hardest out was trying to study both sides of this issue in the city of Chicago, for example, like you said. Um, And on the flip side of producers wanting me to eat fogger in front of them, animal rights activists did not want to talk to me. Um, Or they they did want to talk to me until they learned that I wasn't vegan, um, that I wasn't 100% on their side. What I, what I, how I pitched myself to them was as a student, as a grad student working on a dissertation project about this topic, which was 100% true. Um, but for many, once they found out that I wasn't an activist and wasn't um, 100% on their side, a number of them simply used the interviews that we had set up to attempt to convert me to um, veganism or animal rights activism. And so those interviews really, I had to eventually stop doing them because it just wasn't useful or a good use of anybody's time. Um, and I started more using, um, things that activists had said to journalists and reporters and news articles that were reported looking at their websites or their, uh, press releases, um, so sort of the public material, publicly available materials. I do. I did interview a number of activists, but I was um, in some ways. In some ways, a little disappointed that they didn't want to talk to me about the strategies and the tactics of what they were doing and were more interested in trying to convert me as a person to their to their point of view. Um, for studying the other side was a, was like I said a little bit easier because I had in at least in Chicago because 
Um, I had entree to those chefs and those restaurants through through the farmer's market that I worked at. Um, and so my identity there was a graduate student studying this topic, but it was also as a um, sort of unofficial family member of the particular farm that I worked for. Um, and so that's how I got, you know, quote unquote, into those places. Um, France was a completely different story because I didn't know really anybody. Um, and it was, this is, and this is going to, this is going to sound so quaint. Um, I don't know if I've ever, I've ever, I don't think it's in the book. And I'm not sure if I, um, have told, have told you this, but, um, when I decided I wanted to study this topic and was going to making plans to go to France for three months to do my initial round of field work, I sent letters, physical letters to a number of um, farms and um, small kind of cooperative producers or cooperative processors that I found in a book. Um, I sent 15 letters and either I think it was 11 or 12 of them ended up being accounted for. People actually wrote me back um, and invited me to come to their farm, um, which is at this point in 2017, I cannot imagine actually writing somebody a letter and explaining who I was and asking to come and do an interview um, and then having them actually respond. It's it's very um, contemporaneous in a lot of ways. Um, one particular farm and farmer um, wrote me back and told me that he was going to be at this sort of fancy food show when I first got to France, first got to Paris, um, almost like the weekend after I arrived and um, sent me some tickets to it in the mail and said, please come and hang out at my, at my booth. And so I did. Um, and at that particular fancy food show, there were 15 other foie gras producers also selling their products at that, at that show. And I went around and introduced myself to all of them. Um, and got invites to a number of their farms or invited my, whether I got invites or invited myself is an issue up for debate. Um, but in, somehow made my way down to Southwest France where they were mostly located and sort of couch surfed among them for a few months. Um, so some of it was pushing myself to break my own comfort levels. Um, some of it was a little bit of luck and some of it was people writing back to letters, which I just, I just chuckle now thinking, thinking about. Well, I think, well, congratulations. I think you might be the, the last person to use, uh, letters to try to recruit <laughs> participants to their study. It's kind um, of amazing, right? Yeah. That's, that's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but thanks for that, that response. Uh, it, it really comes off in the book as, as something that must have been very challenging. And I think readers and, and listeners will, will really get a yeah, lot out of your discussion. Also challenging because I didn't speak a lot of French at the beginning. Um, 
I learned French for this project, which I think is also an interesting bit of this. When I started doing the project, I started taking classes at the Amiens Francais in Chicago. I mean, I took French in high school, but I also took algebra in high school. Um, that is not something that really stuck with me. And when I got to France, I spent the first three weeks doing intensive language classes in Paris and really spent, I, you know, remembered what I had learned earlier and got caught up. But any of those language classes do not teach you a lot about duck biology. And so um, on these farms, in these towns, really did a lot of um, having my tape recorder out and saying, what's that? Tell me again. Tell me again. Please, can you explain that again? I don't really get it. Please tell me again. So I'm not sure how many of them really understood um, that I knew what I was doing and how many of them thought I was just an idiot. And so explain to me what they were doing in a number of ways, which actually turned out to be super useful when I listened to the recordings later on and transcribed them in terms of having multiple ways of describing particular processes. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I think ethnographers are going to get a lot out of that. That's, that's, that's really interesting. So we have taken up a lot of your time already. So before we go, I was wondering if you could just tell us uh, a little bit about what you're working on now. Sure. Um, well, now that the book is finally done, um, I am turning my attention to a few, um, other projects, a few small, a few hopefully big. Um, one of the small projects that I'm excited about currently is about the bean to bar chocolate market in the U.S. Um, working with a couple of organizational studies scholars to look at kind of new market categories and how this sort of bean to bar chocolate market that many of us, you know, who eat chocolate and buy chocolate know of or have a local chocolatier in the city that we live in. Um, that are, these things are becoming sort of local products in places that there were no chocolatiers before. Um, and where they're getting their product from, how those commodity chains are working, and especially interesting how many of these entrepreneurs are eschewing the sort of fair trade, direct trade, organic labels that we would think that they might otherwise want. We would think many of these producers would or these small businesses would want to be fair trade chocolate, but in fact, they don't. They don't want to be part of that certification community. And so one of our questions is, well, why not? Um, the other project, the big project that I'm super excited about is a collaborative project with a friend who is a medical sociologist looking at, again, taking taking a food object that's somewhat controversial and just studying the heck out of it from every different angle. And it's looking at the social, behavioral, cultural, organizational policy responses to peanut allergy, um, thinking about risk and fear of a food, not a moral risk or a moral fear the way that foie gras has you know, been constructed over time, but actual physical risk, physical fear, the fear that you or in many cases, your child could die from being exposed to this food that is in many ways um, a quintessential American food. 
and for children, a quintessential sort of American childhood food, peanut butter. Um, and so that is what I am doing now. Well, great. I uh, hope to uh, see those in print in the near future. So thank you so much for coming on the show. It was really great, very fascinating. And uh, hope you have you on again at some point when your new stuff comes out. Thanks, Rich. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. <laughs>